This is the Green Street News. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of experts with your weekly update on what's going on in the world that can impact your health. Welcome back. Did you see that big news story about the FDA issuing warnings about wireless devices and how you can lower your risk of getting sick from the radiation? Well, neither did anyone else, because the FDA isn't issuing any warnings, even though a 1968 law requires that they do. That story and Patty with the week's headlines all ahead on this edition of Green Street News. Stay with us. Would. So what happened in the world of environmental health this week? Interesting stuff, hopefully something new to our audience. Okay. This is a New York Times article by Anna Swanson, and it's entitled, The U.S. Needs Minerals for Electric Cars. Everyone else wants them, too. Yeah. The United States is entering an array of agreements to secure the critical minerals necessary for the energy transition, but it's not clear which of the arrangements can succeed. For decades, a group of the world's biggest oil producers has held huge sway over the American economy and the popularity of U.S. presidents through its control of the global oil supply, with decisions by the Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries determining what U.S. consumers pay at the pump. But as the world shifts to cleaner sources of energy, control over the materials needed to power that transition is still up for grabs. China currently dominates global processing of the critical minerals that are now in high demand to make batteries for electric vehicles and renewable energy storage. In an attempt to gain more power over that supply chain, U.S. officials have begun negotiating a series of agreements with other countries to expand America's access to important minerals like lithium, cobalt, nickel, and graphite. But it remains unclear which of these partnerships will succeed or if they will be able to generate anything close to the supply of minerals the United States is projected to need for the wide array of products, including electric cars and batteries for storing solar power. This is a geopolitical power play here where you got oh, you got a chess huge. game going on between the United States and China as to who's going to control that well, I mean, that's the new oil and gas, yeah, right? Yeah, well, China really has the power right now. Yeah. Leaders of Japan, Europe, and other advanced nations agree that the world's reliance on China for more than 80% of processing of minerals wow. leaves their nations vulnerable to political pressure from Beijing, which has a history of weaponizing supply chains in times of conflict. But figuring out how to access all of the minerals the United States will need will still be a challenge. Many mineral-rich nations have poor environmental and labor standards, and although speeches at the G7 emphasized alliances and partnerships, rich countries are still essentially competing for scarce resources. Japan has signed a critical minerals deal with the U.S., and Europe is in the midst of negotiating one. But like the United States, those regions have substantially greater demand for critical minerals to feed their own factories and supply to spare. The demand for minerals in the United States has been spurred in large part by President Biden's climate law, which provided tax incentives for investment in the electric vehicle supply chain, particularly in the final assembly of batteries. Biden officials agree that obtaining a secure supply of the minerals needed to power electric vehicle batteries is one of their most pressing challenges. So we could invest in a better network of public transportation so everybody doesn't feel like they have to have their own car all the time you know, to go everywhere they want, whenever they want. Yeah, but, but Americans take stuff with them everywhere they go. And that's really hard to do on public transportation. 
especially if you have kids, you know, I mean, there's car seats and there's, you know, supplies for the kids and it's video games and all that stuff to keep them busy while you're traveling. And that doesn't happen on public transportation. Okay, valid point. Then what are we going to do? There doesn't seem to be a good solution here. We need more minerals than there are minerals available. Weren't we looking at vehicles that were powered by... Hydrogen. Hydrogen, exactly. Weren't we looking at vehicles that were powered by hydrogen, and what happened to that technology? Don't know. Well, maybe we should be looking at that again, because that's not depending on these these minerals yeah. that we don't have ready access to. Okay, what else you got? Okay, so obesogens. This is important, why it may be getting easier to gain weight. Obesogens. Obesogens. These are chemicals or something? Yeah, you're going to find out in a minute. Okay. Don't don't push the, don't push Sorry. it. Sorry. Okay. Sorry. This is written by Gwen Raniger, and it is published in Environmental Health News. Obesity is an increasingly common disease in the United States. The most recent statistics gathered from 2017 to 2020 identify 41.9% of Americans as obese, with a prevalence of severe obesity nearly doubling to 9.2% over the last two decades. That's almost 10% of the population being severely obese. Obesity is a serious condition, increasing the likelihood of health problems like heart disease, stroke, and type 2 diabetes, some of the leading causes of premature death. We've all heard the standard solutions, eat less, exercise more, but actually there's more to this. Chemicals in our daily lives make it easier to unintentionally gain weight and may even make it more difficult to lose it. These insidious chemicals are called obesogens, a type of endocrine-disrupting chemical. Quick reminder here, your endocrine system is made up of glands that make hormones. To put it simply, those hormones serve as your body's chemical messengers that control many important parts and functions of the body. Obesogens, as endocrine-disrupting chemicals, hijack that messenger system and can wreak havoc on your health in a variety of ways. Obesogens are generally defined as chemicals that can cause the human and animal body to produce more fat than it normally would. Obesogens can include substances we often think as fattening, like sugars, but also include an array of chemicals used in all sorts of products, such as BPA, phthalates, and more. The way they impact your body include disrupting your metabolism, blocking fat cells from releasing stored fat to use as energy, altering your eating habits, impacting your gastrointestinal tract, which affects how your food is digested, Exposure to obesogens can occur as early as prenatal development. Obesogens can act across one's lifespan, but prenatal exposures are most sensitive to their effects and can cause obesity later in life. So where are these obesogens in our lives, okay? They're in plastic food storage containers, plastic toys, nonstick cookware, personal care product, cleaning supplies, medical devices, flame retardants, pesticides, processed food additives like preservatives, emulsifiers, flavor enhancers, high fructose corn syrup. Scientists, researchers, and doctors are now pushing for those chemicals to be removed as unintentional health impacts are being discovered. So what are the most common obesogens? Pesticides, for example, DDT. Although it was banned in the U.S. in 1972 due to environmental impacts, DDT persists for a long time in the environment and in animal tissues and can cause health effects generations after exposure. 
Phthalates are chemicals that are often added to plastics to increase their flexibility. They're found in cosmetic products, hair and skin products, fast food wrappers, sunscreens, children's toys, food storage containers. Bisphenol A, while it may be more common to find BPA-free products these days, BPA is only officially banned in baby bottles. You can still find it in water bottles, canned food linings, receipts, food containers, toys, and more. PFAS, called forever chemicals for their inability to break down in our bodies and in the environment, PFAS chemicals are found in a vast number of consumer products. And so finally, how can we avoid exposure to obesogens? Avoid storing or purchasing your food in plastics. Use glass or stainless steel containers and bottles instead of plastic. Use cast iron, stainless steel, or enameled cookware. Nonstick coatings are known to contain toxic chemicals. Check your personal care products against databases like the EWG Skin Deep Cosmetics database. Opt for fragrance-free products unless the fragrances are explicitly disclosed and safe. Filter your water. There are a number of options for a variety of budgets. Filter pitchers you can keep in your fridge, under sink filters, and more. This just seems so unfair that we as consumers have to work so hard to avoid these chemicals that we know cause these problems. I mean, look at the population, the statistics you were mentioning before. 10% of the American population is well, severely obese. Severely obese, right. Severely obese. Right. So this is a just a national problem brought on by chemicals. By the way, if you were mentioning PFAS, just wanted to mention a heads up for those of you who missed the show last week. We had a great interview with Arlene Blum, who, and it's called The PFAS Problem, so you might want to listen to that. I just, you know, we've been doing this for 30 or 40 years. So slowly we've cut out almost all of these things out of our life. But if you're starting from scratch and you just meet somebody on the street and you say, you got to avoid this and this and this and this and this, it's overwhelming. Plastic packaging. Just plastic should not touch your food or your drink. That's it. It just, it should, it shouldn't. That would be a good place to start, but try doing that in the supermarket. Oh, I know. Remember we talked to Judith Think a couple weeks ago. She said, you can't do it. You basically right. Can't well, go- it's interesting because my last article is about chemicals in plastics, of okay. which many of them are obesogens. Oh boy! So this one is actually from—it's a report from the United Nations, and it's about their UN Environment Program, and it's called Chemicals in Plastics. Oh, There's boy. a surprise. The UN Environment Program has released a report providing state of the knowledge on chemicals and plastics, and it is based on compelling scientific evidence, and it calls for urgent action to address chemicals and plastics as part of the global action on plastic pollution. Chemicals of concern have been found in plastics across a wide range of products, including toys and other children's products, packaging, including food contact materials, electrical and electronic equipment, vehicles, synthetic textiles and related materials, furniture, building materials, medical devices, personal care and household products, and agriculture, aquaculture, and fisheries. These chemicals of concern in plastics can impact our health and the environment. Extensive scientific data on the potential adverse impacts of about 7,000 substances associated with plastics showed that more than 3,200 of them have one or more hazardous properties. Well, I like your other statistic that was about 13,000 chemicals. Yeah, 13,000 chemicals. More than 13,000 chemicals have been identified as associated with plastics and plastic production. 13,000 chemicals. Yeah, just imagine, I mean... If you made a list. Well, just think about all those chemicals in the plastic waste that's floating around in our oceans, that's dumped in our landfills, that's burned in our incinerators. 
And where are all those chemicals going? Into our air, our water, our soil, our food? Yeah, they're not going away. No. They don't go away when you incinerate. No, 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 or... no. Plastic doesn't go away. All right. So the UN finally says existing evidence calls for urgent action to address chemicals and plastics as part of the global action on plastic pollution to protect human health and the environment and transition to a toxic-free and sustainable circular economy. Good luck. Yeah, good luck is right. All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. You know, we're, we're trying to get two pieces of plastic legislation passed in Albany uh, this session. legislative session, which, you know, is supposed to end on June 8th, but may go a little bit longer because the budget took so long this year. So you have to start somewhere. You start on the state level and you start saying, you know what, producers of plastic, you have to take responsibility for it. Stop using so many chemicals in your plastic. Stop packaging everything in plastic that you know that we that you know and we know never goes away. Yep. All right. Thanks. You're welcome. Over the past 30 years, there has been a revolution in the way we communicate with each other, the way we work, the way we get our entertainment, even the way we, or at least some people, find emotional comfort and even romance. Many of us, especially younger generations, are connected to everything, everywhere, all the time. Phones always in hand, tablets and laptops and game consoles all over the house or apartment. It's just the way we live now. And all of it, all these devices depend on and emit radio frequency radiation. Now, the industry doesn't like the word radiation for obvious reasons. It's a scary word. We've all been taught that radiation means danger, stay away. So the industry calls it radio frequency energy. But changing the name doesn't actually change the thing itself. It's still radiation and yes, it carries risks. The theory that non-thermal levels of what we'll call wireless radiation is harmless has been the basis for regulation and legislation in this country for almost as long as we've had wireless electronic devices. Non-thermal means it's not capable of heating your body or your tissue, and therefore the theory goes it can't be dangerous. That theory is based on a few small studies of mice and rats back in the 1980s. Scientists measured how much wireless radiation it took to raise the body temperature of the animals by one degree. And then they used that to determine a quote unquote safe level for humans. And that, believe it or not, is the level all our federal agencies are still using for their human exposure guidelines today. It hasn't changed in 40 years. Back in the 1950s, the military did some studies on exposure to radar, which uses a similar kind of radio frequency radiation and found evidence of neurological damage as well as acute symptoms in some people exposed. Things like headaches, dizziness, tinnitus, insomnia, and nausea. Since then, thousands of independent scientists around the world have documented how low levels of wireless radiation, below those thermal levels the government is using, can have biological impacts we didn't know about before. Even our own government study of the radiation emitted by cell phones found what scientists call clear evidence of an increased risk of cancer and DNA damage in the lab animals tested. So we have these two factors at play at the same time. 
the exponential growth of the wireless industry, and human exposure guidelines based on an old set of scientific theories that have now been proven to be wrong. So what, you might ask, are our federal agencies doing about this? And what should we do about this? This week, a nonprofit organization called Americans for Responsible Technology, or ART as we call it, filed a citizen's petition with the Food and Drug Administration, accusing the agency of violating its own law and failing to protect public health from the hazards of wireless radiation. And we just happen to have the founder and national director of ART with us in the studio today, Doug Wood. Hi, Doug. Hey, Patty. <laughs> Back at it here. Yep. So, I have a few questions for you. I bet you do. Yep. So, first of all, why are you filing a petition instead of just going to court? So, a petition is how you begin things with the FDA if you have a problem. It sounds like, you know, an innocuous little thing, but actually drug companies do it. Everybody who's got a concern with the FDA about the way they test for drugs or the way they conduct their affairs files a citizen's petition. It's kind of the first step you have to do. You can't really go to court yet. You have to do what the lawyers call exhaust your administrative remedies. And our administrative remedy in this case is to file a citizen's petition. So that's what we did. So, you know, I mean, your basic premise is that the FDA is violating the law though, right? Yeah, that's right. So there's a law that was passed in 1968. So it's been on the books for a long, long time. And that law sets out some very specific things that FDA is obligated to do. They're not suggestions for the FDA. It's not optional, right? The FDA has no choice. It says you shall do this and you shall do that. So basically what Congress wanted to do was to make sure that the FDA did everything it could to make the exposure to RF radiation as low as possible and to help citizens figure out how to reduce their exposures. This is the FDA's job under the law. Okay, so you file the citizen's petition, as it's called. How would you describe the basic legal concept of the petition in layman's terms? Okay, so this is not complicated. The FDA is breaking the law, pure and simple. That's as, as simple as I can make it. By not following any of the mandates. Let me give you an example. Yeah. One of the things the FDA is supposed to do is to evaluate the kinds of exposures that people have to, to radiation. What better example could we have than our schools, where over the past 20 years, or 10 years really, we've, we've transformed education into a digital experience with every kid's got a, a tablet or a, a Chromebook or some kind of wireless device. Right, and the, and the room is filled with wireless devices filled, as well. And they've right. all got phones. Right. So now we've got phones plus devices, plus routers, plus wireless projectors and wireless speakers and who knows what Whiteboards else. Whiteboards and so on. So it's a tremendously rich radiation environment. That's the kind of thing that Congress wanted the FDA to be aware of, to look at, to evaluate. And to mitigate those. And to come back to schools and mm -hmm. say, okay, here's, here's our best advice on how to reduce exposures for these kids. Because we know that kids are more vulnerable to all kinds of environmental toxins than adults just through their regular behavior and physiology. So So basically you want them to you want them to just do what they're supposed to do according to the law. That's all we're asking. It's simple. Well, this is, yeah, this is not complicated. Do what you're supposed to do. Right. So what is the official FDA position on radio frequency radiation? And has the agency set any exposure standards? 
So the law is a little bit ambiguous about whether the commissioner of the FDA uh, or the head of um, health and human services is obligated to set a, a standard. It talks about setting a standard in one part of the law. And, you know, here we go. In one part of the law, it says he shall. In another part of the law, it says he may, depending if he thinks it's, you know, appropriate. So we've got that, that at play. So we can't really be, we can't accuse the FDA of not setting a standard because the law is a little bit ambiguous on that. So there is no official policy at FDA on exposure to wireless radiation, which is amazing because if you talk to the FCC, the FCC has an exposure standard and they point to the FDA and say, well, those guys, the FDA said this is fine. Well, how can the FDA say it's fine if they don't have any exposure standard? I mean, what is it based on? It's like wow. the emperor has no clothes. Yeah, exactly. They've never done the work to establish a standard and they don't want to establish a standard because, you know, I think a lot of scientists would agree. If you looked at this, if this was a new product coming to market now and there wasn't a, a multi-billion or trillion dollar industry behind it, they would have a much lower threshold for human exposure than they currently have. Bottom line, the FDA has never set an exposure standard and they've never done any of the other things that they are required to do by the law. Mm -hmm. And when was this law actually passed? 1968. 1968? That's was, a really long time ago. That's before, that's before anybody was using a cell phone. Of course it was. Long before the cell phone. But, long the, before but the, Congress already knew that there was a problem with... Yeah. with non-ionizing radiation as well as ionizing radiation, because it's for both types of radiation. Is it's that correct? It's for all radiation. All radiation. Yeah. yeah. It's an interesting point you bring up, because the law is not dependent on FDA making an assessment of whether there's a risk or not. Congress already did that. And Congress realized that if there's a risk, if you can lower that risk, that's going to be better for everybody. And that's the mandate of the FDA, is to lower that risk for the American public. Right. So they're supposed to identify where the places are where the exposure is higher. Right. And, and basically tell the public how to reduce that risk or tell the people who are in charge of those institutions or schools or whatever it happens yeah. to be, business offices and so on, that... Here are the things that you can do to minimize the exposure. I'll give you another example. We've got these utility meters now that are wireless. That smart meters, smart, right. They're called smart meters, right? right? They transmit the data about your usage of electricity or gas or water to the, uh, to the utility. Well, they transmit that by emitting these fairly high bursts or, of radiation, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And we've had hundreds and hundreds of phone calls from people who have suddenly become very sensitive to RF radiation after one of these meters has been placed on their homes. We think that it's these bursts of radiation that affect people in a different way than just a constant stream of radiation. Some kind of background radiation. That's right. right. But here's the, here's the rub. The FCC allows these manufacturers to average their exposure over time. So if you get a burst every 30 seconds of, of one second, a one second burst every 30 seconds, you're allowed to average that one second out over the 30 seconds. So like my engineer friend, the average wind speed in Tornado Alley is six miles an hour. It doesn't tell you what it's really like during a tornado, obviously. Right, 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 right. But you're not actually asking the FDA to set a standard or to do research into the health effects of exposure, right? No, you know, Patty, that I think... 
listeners of this program know there's a lot of problems at FDA. There are a lot of problems at EPA. We've got this revolving door of industry moving in, setting themselves up behind the desk and saying, here's what you have to do, you know, to their friends over at, at whatever industry. Or, or going back into or, industry. And, and then they go back after a few right. years. Mm -hmm. So I don't think we can, unfortunately, I don't think we can trust the FDA to do its own studies. I think we need FDA to allow independent scientists to do those studies and to come up with the science that would support a health-based standard. Mm -hmm. Right now, we have a, an industry-based standard. And what I mean by that is they have all this stuff out there that meets a certain exposure threshold. So what we're doing is we're reverse engineering. We're saying, okay, that's gonna be fine despite what we're now learning despite all these new studies that are showing biological harms at much lower levels, much lower levels. we're going to keep that level because we've got an economic interest in keeping that level where it is. Right. All right. So what happens next? What do you expect the FDA to do with this petition? Oh, I expect they're going to sit on it for 180 days, which is their, they've have the, they have 180 days to respond, and I mm -hmm. expect they're going to sit on it. For 180 days? Yeah. I really don't know what they're going to do because they're kind of, in a in a difficult spot. They can't say, you know, gee, Doug, you're right. You know, we forgot all about this 1968 law. We'll get right on it. I doubt that's what they're going to say. They don't want to tell people how to reduce their exposure because that's admitting that there's a problem. And the FDA has never admitted there's a problem. In fact, if you look at the FDA's website, it says there's absolutely no risk to any any person from using a cell phone. Including children and teenagers. Including children and oh, teenagers. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I, I, I don't, you know, they say there's no scientific evidence, which is a bald-faced lie. Their own study is evidence that there's a problem. Right. Now, their own, their own, we, we, we mentioned this earlier, but it was a $30 million study. And the conclusion was that there was clear evidence of cancer. And that cancer was in the schwannoma cells of the heart and gliomas of the brain. And there was also, they also showed DNA damage and yeah. cardiovascular harm. So this is the FDA's own study that they, that they nominated in 1999. Took 16 years to do the study. And yet on their website, it says there's no evidence of harm. Well, that's clearly not true. So the FDA is lying. Not only is the FDA not doing what it's supposed to do, but they're lying to the American people about the evidence that's out there. And right. And the, the study was actually not conducted by the FDA. It was conducted by NIH and the National Toxicology Program, which is part of NIH, and was extremely well designed by people who were really trying to get, you know, solid answers. Yeah. And it's been it's been quoted and used all over the world. And it was tax this, this NTP study and, and taxpayer was, this dollars. This taxpayer paid for it. money we yeah. used. We all paid for it. Thirty million dollars. That's right. So where can people find out more about this petition? We have a website. It's Americans for RT. Americans the number four RT dot org forward slash FDA, as you might expect. So on there you can actually read the petition uh, and the statements of our co-petitioners. You can learn more about the, what the law actually says and what we're asking the FDA to do. So, fingers crossed. Hopefully, you know some good will well, come. Well, at out least you move. At least you're moving the ball, and and it's going to get some public attention. No, no question. So, I'd like to thank Doug Wood, founder and national director of Americans for Responsible Technology. 
And how about I let you do the closing? Okay, thanks. You're welcome. That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street News. If you have questions about the show or suggestions for guests or topics, you can contact us through our website, greenstreetnews.org. Just go to the contact tab and let us know what you think. Special thanks today to our news editor, Ellen Weiniger, our engineer, Josh Lyman, our associate producer, Toby Ziegler, our social media director, Donna Moss, and our marketing director, Sam Seaborn. I'm Doug Wood. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street News. Thanks for listening.